Elijah is in the category of what I think were the greatest men that ever walked the earth. And then again, 300 more times in the New Testament, God is telling us that this same Jesus who has come is coming again. If it doesn't come to pass, it doesn't come from God. If it's not accurate, the prophet is to be executed. God said there's coming a day when I'm going to shake the world. But something will not be shaken. All right, welcome everybody. So glad to be with you tonight. There is literally, there is literally nowhere I would rather be than right here talking about Bible prophecy with you guys. I'm so excited to open his word tonight. Had so much fun the last few weeks looking at the book of Daniel. And we're not done with Daniel. We're going to get back into Daniel. There's exciting prophecy. I can't wait to crack open with you guys. But we're going we're gonna to look at Ezekiel tonight. Now, Ezekiel, in your Bibles comes before Daniel, but what you should know is that Daniel and Ezekiel were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. In fact, uh, Ezekiel mentions Daniel three times in his book, but both men were prophets of God, but they had different roles. They had different responsibilities, and they both would have looked up to another prophet, an older prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was the last operating prophet in Jerusalem in the years leading up to the Babylonian invasion. And so he would have been the guy that was warning the people, warning the king, you better turn from your ways, you better get right with God, he's going to send in the Babylonians. And of course that all fell on deaf ears and so they were invaded. And when that invasion came, there were three phases. It was a three-phased campaign. And I want to give you the historical background. It's just a good backdrop to what we're going to look at tonight. And it looks like this. In 605 B.C., there was the first phase of the Babylonian invasion. Nebuchadnezzar rolls into town, and what he does is he abducts uh, many, many young Hebrew males. And so he, uh, he wants to take them back to Babylon. He wants to reprogram them. He wants to indoctrinate them in Babylonian ways. And I've talked about that before, and among those was a young man named Daniel and three of his friends, Hananiah, uh, Azrael, excuse me, Mishael, and Azariah. You know them better as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but that's the first phase. And then in 597 B.C., you had the second wave of that invasion, and then Nebuchadnezzar uh, exiles, he takes captive up to 10,000 of the upper class of Jerusalem. They are brought to Babylon, but they are not brought to the courts of the king like Daniel and his friends. No, they end up in what's, what really amounts to a concentration camp by what's called the Kebar River. And so they work there. It is a very hard life, hard labor. And uh, among them is a young man named Ezekiel. He's about 25 years of age. Scholars believe that he was perhaps an apprentice of the prophet Jeremiah. And so he is there with with thousands of other Israelites. Back in Jerusalem at this time is Jeremiah. He, he has stayed behind, and he is living and carrying on with the folks who remain in Jerusalem until 586 B.C., the final phase of the invasion. The Babylonians come in. They completely lay waste to the city. They destroy it, and uh, Jeremiah watches it all go down in flames, and it's after that he writes his poetic book, Lamentations 
which you know is part of your Old Testament, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, and this is why. is because of his great sorrow in seeing the city fall. And uh, nonetheless, the Babylonians treat him with kindness. They give him money. They give him food. They release him. He ends up uh, living out his days in Egypt. But that is the context here. That's the background of Ezekiel's book. You've got Ezekiel, and he's in this camp by the Kabar River doing hard labor. You've got Daniel, God's prophet, in the courts in the city of Babylon, in the king's palace. And you've got God's prophet Jeremiah back, at least for a period of time, in Jerusalem. And so that's how this all works. But Ezekiel ends up in Babylon about eight, nine years after Daniel. And so there in uh, the Kabar River camp where he is, uh, for the first five years of that existence, there is no prophet speaking to the people, ministering to the people, comforting the people, until God speaks to this young man. He says, Ezekiel, I want you to prepare the hearts of the people for the reality that they will not see their home again. They, you need to prepare them for the, for the actuality that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And so he begins to prepare them. And about nine years into that camp life, God then reveals some additional prophecies to Ezekiel and they all involve Israel. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Prophecies about Israel. If you want to understand the end times, if you want to understand Bible prophecy, you must understand this kingdom, this people, this nation called Israel. In your notes, to have an accurate view of the end times, you need a correct view of Israel. Okay? If, if you have a flawed view of Israel, uh, if you have an errant take on that, you're, you're going to be confused. I always know when I meet people and they've got a theological background that perhaps has blurred the lines between Israel and the church, or if they think that the church has replaced Israel, or that God is done with Israel, finished with Israel, I know their eschatology is going to be different from mine. Uh, things are going to be a little bit out of whack, and so you need a proper view here. Now, we have talked about on Wednesdays uh, the ages of God and man what we call the dispensations, okay? We talked about uh, the age of innocence. God created man in innocence. We talked about the age of conscience. We talked about the age of government and of promise and of law. And uh, when you look at Scripture, it's often helpful to identify what age you are reading about. And so when we look at our scripture tonight, we see that here Israel has been exiled into Babylon. What dispensation, what age is that? Well, they're in the age of law. They're in the age of law. Now, were they following the law of God when they were exiled into Babylon? Uh, no, that's the whole point. That's why God allowed the Babylonians to come in. They were a rebellious people. Now, what was the age just prior to the age of the law? It's the age of promise. Some of you have a chart from week one, and you can identify that. Hopefully, you, you held on to that. You can always download a PDF of that from the video for week one on YouTube. Uh, but the age of promise, whereby God made a covenant with this people, with the Israelites. Now, just because they've moved into the age of law, does that mean that God has broken his promise to them? Hey, does God break promises? Or does God keep his promises? He keeps them. And so his promise remains, but the age has changed, you see. And so it's just the form of governance uh, that, that has changed. And this is a disobedient people, and yet God 
is keeping his promise to them. His promise is still in place. Now, in your notes throughout Scripture, what has Israel done to displease God? Well, how long have you got? I mean, it's a lot. There's disregard for the law. There's idolatry. There's murder of the prophets, including the greatest prophet of all, Christ himself. They would crucify him, right? Now, if you recall what we taught about these ages... Each age, each dispensation is characterized by a command. I don't know if you remember that, but God would say, do this or don't do this, right? That would be the command of that age, and man would always disobey the command, right? Do you remember the command for the age of law? What would it be? Obey the law. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty simple, right? Just obey the law. Listen to the prophets, obey the law, watch for Messiah. How'd they do? Well, they broke them all. They disobeyed the law, sometimes outright. I mean, they worshipped idols, right? That's disobedience to the law. Did they listen to the prophets? No, they killed them. They killed the prophets. And they followed after idols. And they've done this since Egypt. They worshipped idols in Egypt. Uh, when they came into the land in Canaan, they followed after the idols of the Canaanites. Uh, even some of the early kings of Israel engaged in idolatry, starting with Solomon. For Pete's sake. And so they were a disobedient people, but in light of that, even though God is going to keep his promise, as we'll talk about later, what in your notes is God's multi step response to their disobedience? Well, here's what it looks like. Uh, number one in your notes, there's going to be destruction of Jerusalem. We're going to see that. Obviously, that's going to happen with the Babylonians. Is it going to happen again? Yes, because after they are exiled in Babylon, they're going to come back eventually. They're going to rebuild their city. Guess what? In AD 70, Rome is going to come in, and he's going to pulverize Jerusalem. And so there's destruction. Uh, number two, there's dispersion of the nations, right? When Babylon raised the city, what happened to the people? They were dispersed. They were taken into exile. There were some in the courts, some in this camp, some into Egypt and other places. We're going to see it after A.D. 70. They're going to be dispersed all over the world. They're, they're not even going to be a nation. Nobody will even know where to find them. They'll be so, uh, so evacuated from Israel. Number three, there's going to be the darkening of their minds. That's a judgment, okay, of their unbelief, of their rejection of Messiah. It's prophesied in Isaiah. Uh, he says they will be blinded. A stupor will come over them. Let me ask you, is Israel embracing the Messiah in droves today? They are not. Individual Jews are. As a people, they, they are in the process of rejecting their Messiah. One day that will change, but right now they're blinded. And then number four, uh, there will be displacement of Israel. And, and along with that, there will be, as they are displaced, there will be the grafting in of the Gentiles. And I, for one, am glad about that, that I have been allowed to be brought in to God's uh, plan of redemption. Paul writes about this in, in Romans 11, the fullness of the Gentiles. He talks about the mystery of the church. He speaks of an olive, olive tree. He speaks of a branch that represents Israel, how they're going to be cut off. And then a wild branch that's, that's Gentiles. We're the wild ones. Wild thing, right? And God is going to graft us, the wild branch, into this tree. And it's, we're now part of his stewardship, his redemptive plan. Now, that branch of Israel, are they going to remain cut off? No. No, God's not done with them. He's going to bring them back in. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, that they are not abandoned. 
It's going to be good. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time. It, there's a lot of content here, God. I'm so excited when I look at it all, God, but I know it can be confusing. I pray that you will give us a special illumination when we read the text, that you'll give us understanding. And uh, Lord, I just, I just pray that people would be patient. And they, they, I, I'm thankful for technology that we can go back and we can watch the videos and kind of get caught up and push pause and get our head around things, God. But you put this all in your word for a reason. You didn't put it in there for us to just be befuddled by it. You want us to grasp it. And so I pray that you will help us, give us the power and the insight to do that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at Ezekiel. The prophet is there by the Kabar River, and Ezekiel uh, 31, verse 1, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. All right? And so we've got a vision happening here. Ezekiel is, is in a labor camp by the Kabar River. The Kabar River is really just a canal. The canal is an offshoot of the Euphrates. And so the Babylonians have these slaves. And so Ezekiel and company are digging this canal. And they're diverting water to the city of Babylon, which is about 50 miles from the Kabar. All right? And so he is there physically, but God has transported him via vision to this place, the middle of the valley. And he says, it was full of bones. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And so this is a vivid vision, and it is realistic and extremely intense, and he's transported to what appears to be a large mass grave, all right? And he's surrounded by skeletal remains. This is a nightmare. All of these bone fragments, innumerable, and it's a field overflowing with decay and the deceased. And it must have been reminiscent of the not-too-distant past because the Babylonians came through into Israel, and they, they wreaked havoc, and they killed, and they raped, and they pillaged, and in their wake, they left a horrific trail of destruction, and through every valley in which they passed, there was horror, there was death, the bodies of the slain were just countless, and those who were left alive did not number enough to bury the dead, and so the dead just remained on the floor of the valley, and so the vultures came. And they would pick at these bodies and eat the flesh off them. The wolves and various predators would come down from the hills and they would devour and tear at the bodies. And the sun would beat down and would bleach the bones white. And the heat of that region would bombard them until they were dusty and dry. Just scores and scores of dry, dusty bones, the largest mass grave that one can imagine. And so Ezekiel has stepped into this nightmare, this, this scene out of the Holocaust. And then God asks him a very strange question. He says in verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh Lord, God, you know. And so what does it mean when God asks him that, can these bones live? Here's what that means in your notes. It invokes the concept of resurrection. There's a resurrection pictured here. Is that an important concept in our faith? <laughs> yes. I mean, Jesus, without his resurrection, what have we got? We don't have a viable faith at all. It's the centerpiece of our faith. When you think of his earthly ministry, did he raise people from the dead? He did. How about the disciples? Did they raise people from the dead? Absolutely. Peter, 
Paul, they raised people from the dead. Are you and I promised a resurrection from the dead one day? We are indeed. And so we don't question that, but all that I've just described, that is New Testament faith. Those are concepts in the New Testament. Ezekiel is in the Old Testament. So was anybody raised from the dead in the Old Testament? Why, there are a couple. We got a few of those. Uh, Elijah raised the son of a Shunammite woman. We read about that in 2 Kings 4. Elijah had a successor named Elisha who asked for a double portion of, of his master's anointing and he carried on a ministry and when he died they buried him and there's a story in 2 Kings 13 when some guys come along their friend has died and so they they put their friend into the grave of Elisha and when the man touches the bones of the prophet he is raised from the dead and so there are a few instances they're they're a little obscure uh but there was sort of a prophetic concept of a distant, a far distant resurrection. In Job 19, verse 25, it says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And so there was this vague understanding that one day people would be raised from the dead. What, what does that look like? When would that be? What is the fashion of that they weren't sure that they understood. In fact, if you remember when Lazarus died, Jesus goes, he is consoling Martha, the sister of Lazarus. He says, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, I, I know that in the last days there is resurrection. So she, she had some vague concept of it, didn't really understand it. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, verse uh, 19 of chapter 26, says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, you who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. And so there is this idea, but there was no full uh, revelation of what it meant. And with that in mind, we see God now telling uh, Ezekiel to prophesy over the bones in the vision. And what he's talking about in your notes is this. God is showing Ezekiel a two-phase movement of Israel coming back to life. Israel is coming back to life. And so we read on in verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied, Ezekiel says, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. This is the sound of dry bones rattling, right? Okay, we just sang it. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, foot bone connected to the ankle bone, right? And so on. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them, okay? This is phase one in your notes. Resurrection phase one. They rise again but without life. They are reconstituted. They've got all the parts. They got the bones. They got the musculature. They've got the, the lungs. They've got the skin. They got the hair, the feature, all of that stuff, but they're not alive. They're still dead. 
Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied, and he commanded me, and the breath that came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. I'm, I'm reminded of Genesis when God creates Adam from the dust of the earth, and it says that he breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There's something about breath that has to do with man being animate and alive. And so this is resurrection phase two in your notes. Life enters them, and not only does life enter them, now they are not merely, they don't merely look alive, they're a great army. They're a great army. And so who are these bones? Well, it tells us in verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. The whole house. Not just Israel, but the whole house of Israel. What does that mean in your notes? What is meant by that? The whole house of Israel means a unified kingdom as it was under David. Okay? These bones are the northern and the southern kingdoms unified. You recall, Israel was originally one kingdom. Okay? You had Saul, David, Solomon, first three kings, one kingdom, unified. Then, after Solomon died, split. All right? It was a mess. You had a northern kingdom. You had a southern kingdom. Israel and Judah. And this is the whole house. That means there's no division. They are, they are reunited. And behold, they say in Scripture, our bones, the bones say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. Hopeless and cut off. That's how the world has historically seen Israel. Okay, in the early part of the 20th century or even before the 20th century, that's how you saw Israel. They're a hopeless nation. They're not a nation at all. They're dead. They're cut off. They're, who, who knows where they are? And even today, cut off is sort of how Israel sees itself. We're cut off. They're surrounded by nations that hate them, that want them wiped off the map. And God says in verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And so how do we interpret that? Well, just like it sounds in your notes. Verse 12 is to be interpreted as Jews returning to the physical land of Israel. Folks, this is not a literal physical resurrection that we're talking about. It is symbolic of a prophesied event that is yet future for the prophet of Israel, or uh, the prophet Ezekiel. It's not a resurrection physically, it's a prophesied return to the land, at least the first phase of it, you see. Because for all practical purposes, Israel was dead. They had no national identity, they had no geopolitical borders, there was no sovereignty, you understand? After AD 70, you couldn't even find them. They were scattered to the four winds. They were not thought of as a nation that existed. They were dead. Uh, you, could, you could not find them in one single nation. There was not a single nation in which they were all located. And uh, this prophecy is about them returning to the land. Now you say, well, is this, is this about the Babylonian exiles 
coming back to the land? No, because those people were not uniformly dead. You had people with life. You had Daniel. You had Ezekiel. Okay, We're talking about a future generation that has no spiritual life. They are on the whole spiritually dead, and they are going to return to the land. And folks, I believe this has already begun. It's already begun. And it began after World War II. They started coming in mass back to their ancestral homeland. They were converging upon Israel, and it was miraculous. And then in 1948, they were recognized as a sovereign nation, the nation of Israel. It was a miracle. People didn't see it coming. The religious world didn't see it coming. Theologians were stunned. All right? And so it has already begun. But they are, they are an animated corpse as a nation. How is, that, how is that possible? In your notes, how is modern-day Israel like an animated corpse? Well, they're not dead, but they don't have life. They're like zombies, Okay, they're, they're darkened. They look alive, but they're not alive. When I was in high school, I worked at a movie theater. Okay, I, I, I made popcorn and such. And one of the perks of working at this movie theater is that I could watch, I could go watch any movie for free. All I had to do if I wanted to see a movie is show up, show my employee badge, and I could go in and catch a flick. And I enjoyed that. I took advantage of that. And I watched a lot of movies. And there were many movies that I, that I had a good time with and all that. And there, then there were some movies that I thought to myself, I'm really glad I didn't pay to see that movie. And one such movie was a movie called Weekend at Bernie's. Now, who will admit to seeing this movie? All right. Oh, wow. Wow. Sleeper hit. Anyway, uh, if you don't know... Uh, this is a goofball comedy. It's about a couple of bumbling insurance guys, and they discover they work for a guy named Bernie, as you might guess, and they discover some fraud in the records, and so they go to Bernie, and they, they show him what they've discovered, and he commends them, and he invites them to his house over Labor Day weekend. Well, they're very excited about this to go to the boss's house. What they don't know is Bernie is the one who committed the fraud. And he doesn't want them to, to tell anybody. And so Bernie has mob connections. And so he enlists those connections to off these guys before the, the news gets out. Well, what Bernie doesn't know is the mob has it out for him. They want him taken out. And so they inject him with something. And, and so Bernie becomes a stiff. And so these two bumbling guys show up at Bernie's house. They discover this corpse. Now they're freaked out because they, they worry somebody's going to blame them. They're going to think that they killed Bernie. And so they fear for their lives, and they think the only way out of this, and I, I can't even explain to you why they think this, the only way out of this, they think, is to convince people that Bernie is still alive. And so the whole rest of the movie is about them rigging up Bernie's body with all these various contraptions to animate him and make him look like he is still with the living. And he's got these sunglasses on that they put on him and his face is sort of uh, contorted because of the injection into this goofball grin. It's the stupidest movie ever. The point is, he looked alive, he was dead. Israel, this illustration may be the biggest stretch I've ever perpetrated. What did Pastor Scott talk about? Well, he made an illustration with Weekend at Bernie's. Interesting. Israel looks alive. They look vibrant. 
They are a productive nation. If you go there, you'll be amazed. They have incredible scientific accomplishments. They've got agricultural advancements that will blow your mind. What should be a barren wasteland is lush. It's green. They are phenomenally advanced. They have contributed to the arts, to music, uh, in literature, in science, in medicine. They're a nuclear power. They are an economic force. They've got massive Tourism, they're on the world stage in a big, big way. They have no spiritual life because they have not embraced the Messiah. But they're in the land, and that is key. And so in your notes, the first event that will begin to usher in the end times is the political reconstitution of the nation of Israel. And it's already underway. Phase one is underway. Okay? Now, verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph and the, the, uh, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel associated with him. And so he, he's having the prophet take these two sticks. On one, he writes a name, and on another, he writes another name, and he puts them together. What do these sticks represent? Well, in your notes, first of all, one stick represents Judah. That's what he said. And, and all, all associated with Judah. So Judah is a tribe. It's the tribe uh, from which Christ would descend. All right? And associated with Judah are the tribes of Benjamin, Simeon, and Levi, and other godly Israelites that, that left the north, which were an idolatrous people at the time. And so that was, that's basically the kingdom of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. On the other stick, it represents, in your notes, Israel. Okay? And so this is, he says, write the name Joseph. So this is the house of Joseph, which is comprised of two powerful tribes, the tribe of Manasseh, and the tribe of Ephraim. So the historic figure of Joseph, uh, we're going to be studying Genesis uh, next year on Sundays in here, and we will eventually get to the life of Joseph. He had two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so those tribes form the main body of the northern kingdom. And so these are the two kingdoms that remained after Solomon's death, uh, when the kingdom split. And in your notes, when Ezekiel unites these two sticks, what is that a picture of? It's a picture of God reuniting Israel into one kingdom under one king. That has not happened yet. That's going to be phase two, okay? Uh, it will happen. They will be gathered and reunited. Where will they be gathered from and where will they be reunited? In your notes, they will be gathered from all their places of dispersion. All their places, right? It's, the gathering has begun, okay? But eventually, they're all coming back. Uh, but people have begun moving to Israel. Started after World War II. Uh, you, you got people from Europe. You got them from Austria. You got them from Germany. You got them from Hungary, Poland, France. Throughout the 20th century, even America. Jews moving to Israel, you know? People born, raised here, but they're Jewish. And they're moving to Israel. They're joining the IDF. You see it. I've met them. I've talked to them. And so in your notes, they will be reunited in their own land in the mountains of Israel. In the land, in the mountains of Israel. Verse 21 says, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they've gone and will gather them from all around, bring them into their own land. This is not just relocating, this is reuniting. And what is involved with reuniting 
Israel. Well, in your notes, there is a spiritual cleansing. A spiritual cleansing. They'll be back in the land, as many of them are now, but the difference is the scales will have fallen and they will be cleansed. And this is why the resurrection of Israel is in two phases. They are currently being brought back to the homeland, started long ago, continuing today, will continue. Ultimately, they're going to turn back to God. We're going to read about this as we look at the tribulation in the weeks to come, and we will see them recognize their Messiah. They will look upon him, Scripture says, uh, and mourn him as one mourns an only son. And they will be cleansed of their defilement. And our text goes on to say, But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. You can almost hear the longing in the voice of the Lord. Does he love Israel? He so loves his people. And he can't wait for this day. And so there's a spiritual cleansing. And we're going to see a shift in our text here that's going to lead us eventually to another text in 2 Samuel. And they are connected, two totally different books from different epochs of time. But they're connected because your Bible is not just a bunch of random stories and letters. It's connected. This is all going somewhere. So we're still in Ezekiel, verse 24, my servant David. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, I'd like you to underline that phrase. My servant David. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, unified. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant, you can underline that phrase, David my servant shall be their prince forever, all right? David is going to rule over them. Now, does that mean that King David is going to be resurrected? (laughs) And he will once again be king over them? Uh, No. No, in your notes, my servant David is a reference to Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, what in the world does that mean? How come it doesn't say Christ? Why does it say David? Well, what's the relationship between David and Christ? It goes on in verse 26. He says, I will make a covenant. You can underline the word covenant. A covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then the nations, who is that? That's the Gentiles. That's all the non-Jews, okay? The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. Does it sound like he's done with Israel? Does it sound like he's given up on Israel? No, he says, I will be the Lord that will sanctify Israel. When will he do this? He tells us, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. What is the sanctuary? What is that? It's the temple. It's the temple. And so we've just read this passage. Now there's a key word in that passage. I had you underline it. What is it? Covenant. Covenant. What is a covenant? Well, in your notes, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. That is the general, generic definition of a covenant. Now, 
When we talk about covenants, when we read the Bible, the type of covenant that we're concerned in, uh, concerned with is not a generic covenant. It, we're not looking and, and thinking on a mere agreement between two parties. Biblical covenants, in your notes, are always initiated by God. All right? That is what we're concerned with here today. Man never initiates a covenant with God. You don't make a deal with God. God makes a covenant with you. God makes the arrangement always. And there are two types of covenants in your notes. Conditional and unconditional. Now, what's the difference? Well, you could probably figure it out, but a conditional covenant, God says, if you do A, B, and C, then I will do X, Y, and Z. If you don't do A, B, and C, then I won't do X, Y, and Z, or I will do something to you that you don't want done. That's a conditional covenant. An unconditional covenant is where God says, I will do this thing, and it is not contingent in any way upon your behavior, your activities whatsoever. You just have faith that I will do it because I said I'm going to do it. That's an unconditional covenant. And so... In your notes, there's a chart. I've given you a chart, and that chart lists four covenants. We're going to walk through these covenants. These are four primary covenants in Scripture. Now, this this is not exhaustive. There's a whole slew of covenants between God and man, uh, individuals and and peoples, and uh, we're not going to look at every single covenant in the Bible. There's the Adamic covenant that he made with Adam. There's the Noahic covenant where he promised he would never flood the earth again. That's an unconditional covenant. The sign of that is the rainbow, you know, before it got hijacked by current groups and such. But we're going to look at some other covenants. And the first we're going to look at is called the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. Uh, In your notes, the type of covenant that this is, this is an unconditional covenant. And you remember what that means. That means God's going to do something and, and he's just going to do it. And we just need to have faith that he's going to do it. It's not contingent upon anything. He will do it. All right? And the recipient of this covenant is Israel. It's all in the title. It's the Abrahamic covenant. Israel, that's the descendants of Abraham. Okay? So they're the recipient of this covenant. And the basis, all covenants have a basis. And the basis for this covenant is the promise of Christ. All of these covenants have a basis that involves Christ, but it's a different aspect. So we're talking about the promise of Christ. Genesis 12 is where we see this covenant, where it first appears. God makes a promise to Abraham, uh, then known as Abram. And he says in verse 1, Now the Lord said to him, Abram, uh, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land, very important, that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will, I will bless those who bless you. And uh, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see any conditions in there? Are there any if-then patterns in there? Any pre, uh, quid pro quos or anything like that? No. No, this is an unconditional covenant. God's going to keep his end of this. No matter what, no matter what Abraham does. And so in your notes, here's the content of that covenant. And it's for Abraham's descendants, right? So for for them, you've got land. You've got uh, national greatness. You've got a great name. You've got blessing for their allies, 
think it's important to support Israel in light of this. And you've got cursing for enemies. You've got cursing for enemies. I went to Israel, I bought a t-shirt. You know what that t-shirt said? On the back of that t-shirt was a list of all of Israel's historic enemies. It just listed them all. And then on the other side of their name, it had the date of their demise. Every single one. Started with the Egyptians and went through the Philistines and then the, uh, the Amalekites and the uh, Hittites and the Jebusites and the Termites. You know. <laughs> and it had the name and the date of their demise that they ceased to exist. Nazi Germany was on there, all right? So it had the 1940s when they, they went poof and all that. And the last name on the list was Iran. And the date, it just had a, a row of question marks. And then at the bottom it said, be nice. All right? <laughs> be nice, because we have a great ally. And his name is Yahweh. Okay? And so the last part of the covenant that we read is that there would be a blessing through Abraham's lineage. For who? For all the families of the earth. So you can add to the content that for us, there is a blessing. And what is the name of that blessing? Yeshua. Christ. Jesus. Because he's going to come through the line of Abraham. And so that's the only part of the covenant that you and I get in on. We are not Abraham's descendants. We don't take part in the land, in the, you know, all the other things. But we are blessed, all the families of the earth, through Christ. All right, Genesis 12, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, who is offspring? Who does that refer to? What does Galatians 3.16 say? Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural. Referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, so what this means is, this covenant relates to, and the recipient of this, to receive this, you must be a descendant of Abraham, but that alone is not enough. You must also be someone who has embraced the true Messiah, who is the ultimate offspring, who is Christ. All right? So you understand? So the idea here is that we who are in Christ, the church, we are not the descendants of Abraham. We are the bride of Christ, but the offspring of Abraham, those who have descended from him, who have embraced the Messiah, uh, they, all of the promises of Abraham's descendants apply to the descendants who are righteous in their epoch of time. So that would be from Abraham on up until uh, the new covenant era. And then there will be descendants of Abraham in a future time, the tribulation, who will turn to Christ in droves. And so the people of that era and the people of this era, those are the recipients of the kingdom. Now, how long did God promise he would give the land to Abraham? We saw it. it it's forever. Are, are they in the land today? Yeah, but is the land what is promised to them, to the totality of those borders? Is that what is described? No, and they're giving up more of it all the time. And have they been in the land and then kicked out of the land and then come back to the land and then been kicked out of the land and they come back and somebody destroys their city and then they rebuild it and then they're in exile and they come... Yeah, well, 
when, when they're finally in there, in the fulfillment of this promise, it will be forever. Genesis 13, 15, for all the land you will see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. How many offspring? Uh, Genesis 13, 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. So the grains of sand on the shore, the dust on the earth. Genesis 15, 5, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, Abraham, and number the stars if you're able to number him. So shall your offspring be. They're going to be like the stars. They're going to be like the dust. 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Folks, throughout history, salvation is always represented by faith. By faith, okay? Now, people get in trouble because they blur that covenant with the next covenant that we're going to look at. This is the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. We also call this uh, the Old Covenant. We also call it the law, the law. Okay, so what type of covenant is the law? Is it unconditional? No, it is conditional. Now the recipient, again, is Israel. The law is for Israel. This is why you and I don't sacrifice lambs and goats and bulls. This is why you and I don't worship on Saturday. All right, now we, we could if we wanted to. I, my last church, we had a Saturday night service, but you're not required to worship on Saturday is the point. This is why we don't abstain from certain foods as a dietary uh, 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 observance of our faith. All right, maybe we should abstain from some foods. Okay, but as you know, under under the covenant that you and I are under, we can you know I say pass the bacon and praise the Lord. You know, um, the basis for this covenant. This is the this is the picture of Christ. The picture of Christ. Think of all the pictures of Christ in the law. The whole sacrificial system. All of that, that shedding of blood pointed ahead to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's the picture of Christ. Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, watch this. This is, this is crazy. This is to Abraham. God says this. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. God said that to Abraham. Before his descendants ended up in bondage in Egypt. Isn't that amazing? The Bible blows my mind. And so when they're down there in bondage, as God told Abraham they would be, God's going to raise up a man. What's his name? Moses. Moshe. And he will lead his people out of bondage and they will wander in the wilderness. And while they're wandering, God will give his law to Moses. You could just see Charlton Heston coming down from Sinai with those stone tablets. And they will have to follow that law. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if, that's an important word because this is a conditional covenant. If you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant... And you could almost put a then in here. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people. So it's all about how they represent Yahweh to the nations. See? By obedience to the law, they will model his righteousness. That is what is the idea in this covenant. And through the next chapter in Exodus, chapter 20, uh, 
God's going to give Moses the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. He's going to build on that for the next several chapters to reveal the totality of the law. And if you follow, you're going to see a whole slew of stuff that they have to do to, to separate themselves from the nations. And you see it through chapter 31. And in Deuteronomy 11, it says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded today, and the curse, if you do not obey. That's conditional. Blessing, if you obey. Cursing, if you don't. Okay? And you will, if you go after the gods that you have not known. So here's the content in your notes. The content, and I think it's pre-printed, but Israel will receive blessing if they keep the law and cursing if they do not. Okay? Okay? So... I'm going to skip over the next column in that chart. And I'm going to look at that, that last column on the right. This is the new covenant. The new covenant. What type of covenant? It's, the un, it's an unconditional covenant. So the recipient here is different for the first time. We got all believers. All believers. This is available to all mankind if you trust Christ. Evangelical churches, including this one, are called new covenant churches. Okay? And, but I, that said, I should tell you that the first people to whom this covenant was revealed was Israel. And it was revealed in Jeremiah. But before I show you that, the basis for this covenant in your notes is the person of Christ. Okay, the Abrahamic covenant uh, was about the promise of Christ. The Mosaic covenant was about uh, the picture of Christ. This is the person of Christ. He is this covenant, you see. So here's what Jeremiah says, verse 31 of chapter 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is not Moses' covenant. Makes it clear right there. It's totally different. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. See, the law was outside of them. Now he's going to put it on their heart. I will write it on their heart. Hey, what does that sound like? That sounds like Christianity. Has God written something on your heart? Spiritually? You got a Holy Spirit in you? Yeah. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. And they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You could be reading the New Testament. Sounds like our faith. And listen to this parallel in Matthew 26, the words of Christ. Verse 28, For this is my blood. He's in the upper room. This is my blood. We do this at communion. This is my blood of the covenant. King James says of the new covenant. And the Greek word kainos is there. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So he has connected it to what is prophesied in Jeremiah. And here's the content in your notes. Eternal salvation by grace through faith. Eternal salvation by grace through faith. Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses. Okay, it's always been by faith. Always, always, always. Anybody ever says to you, uh, how are people in the Old Testament saved? 
The answer is not through obedience to the law. Nope, nope, nope. It's always been, justification has always been by faith. Now that manifests as obedience, but it's always by faith. Now we're going to spend the rest of our time on this last covenant here. It's called, in your notes, the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant. You see the name David in there. What type of covenant? It is an unconditional covenant. Thank the Lord. And the recipient is all believers. Now, as with the Abrahamic covenant, it is given to Abraham and to his descendants. Well, this, it's all in the name. It pertains to David and his descendants. But eventually, all believers are the recipients because David's ultimate heir will eventually reign over all the nations of the earth. So this impacts all of us. Here's the basis in your notes. It's the, here's another P word. I'm being very pastorly tonight. I'm alliterative. All right? It's the pedigree of Christ. The pedigree. Uh, the background to this is that if you go back before, long before the Babylonian invasion, to the, almost the beginning of the kingdom of Israel, one of the greatest kings Israel ever had, the greatest king Israel ever had, was the second king of that kingdom, David. David, man after God's own heart. After he became king, uh, the capital of the kingdom had not yet been where we would consider it to be, which is in Jerusalem. So David sees this city, Jerusalem, the Jebusites are running it. He's got eyes on the city. He overtakes that city, conquers the Jebusites, builds a palace in Jerusalem. And so he is reigning over his modest kingdom right there in Jerusalem. And he looks out and he sees the tabernacle. Now, you, you remember what the tabernacle is. The tabernacle was that mobile makeshift temple in the wilderness wandering. So the Israelites come out of Egypt. They wander in the wilderness. And God commands them uh, to build the Ark of the Covenant where his presence would manifest, and then they have this thing called the tabernacle. And so it was this makeshift thing. It was basically a tent. And so you had a tent uh, called the Holy of Holies. You had an outer court. You had a place where sacrifice would be. The ark would go in the tent. Only Moses could go in there. He would meet with God in there. And so they would set it up. They'd tear it down. They'd roam. They'd set it up. They'd tear it down. They'd roam. It's sort of an easy up situation. Well, when they got into Canaan, into the land, it became a little more stationary. But it was still basically a tent. And so here's King David, and he's living in the cedar palace. It's nice and plush. And he looks out, and he sees this tabernacle, and it's looking pretty crummy. And he thinks to himself, well, this isn't right. That I should live in a palace, and God should live in a tent? I want to build God a house. And so he tells his prophet Nathan, I'm going to build God a house. Nathan said, Sound good. sounds good, boss. I like it. And later God says to Nathan, I didn't tell you to affirm that. And here's what he says to his prophet. God says in 2 Samuel 7, verse 5, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I was brought up, uh, the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? He says, did Gideon build me a house? Did Samson build me a house? No. Uh, whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Uh, God didn't need a house. That's the point. Now, he's not overly offended at the idea. It's a noble idea. Nice of David to think of this. But God is not requiring that. He's not commanding that. But he uses this as an opportunity 
to reveal something prophetically to David. Look at verse 8. It says, now therefore, he says to Nathan, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be my prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. This is just a reminder of all that God has done for David. I took you from the sheepfold, boy, and I put you where you are. And God promises David two things. Look at verse 10. He says, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore, as previously since the time I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. So this is the first promise that God makes to David in your notes. Number one, a permanent and safe place for Israel. If you live in Israel today, this is a dream. They live in constant danger. There are attacks all the time. Now, don't let that dissuade you from visiting Israel. It is one of the safer places as a tourist to be. But if you live on the perimeters, okay, there are people who wish them ill. Absolutely. But this is going to be a continuation of the promise made to Abraham regarding the land. He goes on, he says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. A house. And so in your notes, this is the second part of the promise. An everlasting house for David. For David. See, David wants to build... God a house, God says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. But it won't be a physical house. It's going to be a dynasty. It's that kind of house. It's like house of Windsor, house of sod. All right? This is the house of David. Israel has never had that. Saul didn't have a dynasty. I'm sure he would have loved that. But he didn't last long enough. He was the last of his line to sit on that throne. He died. His son Jonathan died. He had one other son, Ishbosheth, who tried to take the throne. Didn't count because the kingdom was divided. And so after Ishbosheth died, which was in short order, Saul's family was extinct. No more. But here are the details of the house of David. Verse 12 When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Okay? And so what he's saying is, this thing that you want to do, David, you want to build me a house, you want to build me a temple, I'm going to let that happen. You're not going to do it. Your son will do it. Your son will do it. And what was the name of David's son that would build the temple? Solomon. Solomon. Last week I introduced a concept called a near and far fulfillment. You remember that? Near fulfillment means there's a prophecy. Part of that prophecy will be fulfilled in the short term to show the, the sovereignty of God and to give you assurance of a fulfillment that is yet future, that is distant. We don't know how far, right? There is a near fulfillment to this prophecy. And in your notes it's this. Solomon builds the first temple, but his kingdom would split. His kingdom would split. So Solomon is going to complete the first part of this prophecy, but he will not be the final fulfillment. What did God say? Your throne will last forever. It's going to be an everlasting kingdom, right? 
Well, so much for that with Solomon. Because Solomon was a perplexing figure. The guy, the guy had 700 wives. Folks, that's 700 mothers-in-law. <laughs> now, now, I would happily take 700 of my mother-in-law. Is she here? Okay. <laughs> but he had 700 wives. He had 300 concubines. I mean, he's just an aggravating historical figure, but he will build the temple. So that's the near fulfillment. Here's the far fulfillment. It says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. Far fulfillment in your notes. Another descendant builds the last temple. His kingdom would last forever. So there's got to be somebody after Solomon who is still considered a son of David. And a son doesn't mean a direct son. It could mean a descendant. Okay? And so it will be someone from the line of David. That's the point. But it will come after Solomon builds the temple. Question in your notes, what is the term given to the one who would sit on the throne of an everlasting kingdom? What do you call that individual? Is there a title for that guy? Yeah, it's Messiah, Mashiach, Mashiach. And who do we know as the Messiah? Yeshua HaMashiach, right? Jesus, Messiah. The Jews have always known that this prophecy, the Davidic covenant, is speaking of the Messiah. Solomon is not the Messiah. There is a greater son of David that's coming. 2 Samuel 23, 5. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is my salvation and my desire. Will he not make it increase? There's going to be a king that will rise up from David's line and he will reign forever. There are 40 Old Testament prophecies that reference the Davidic covenant. Over 40, Okay. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 30, if his children, and by the way, this is unconditional. It's unconditional. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes, drop down to verse 33, it says, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. There will be sin in David's line. There will be sin in David. Just as there was sin in Saul, people sinned. David, did David sin? Had an affair, right? Uh, had a man killed to be with his wife. Still called a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he's the recipient of, an, of a covenant that involves an everlasting kingdom. And God is a God who keeps his word. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David... A righteous branch, and he shall reign. That's the Messiah. Isaiah 9, you know this one. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. You can hear the strains of Handel's Messiah right here. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. All right? Uh, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. We read about uh, the everlasting kingdom in, in Daniel 7. You recall the visions that we've studied in Daniel? You remember Daniel 2, the, the, the giant rock that reduced that statue to dust and then it grew and filled the whole earth? It's this kingdom. In Daniel 7, the four beasts and then final, finally followed by, by the coming of a son of man in the clouds. 
with an everlasting kingdom, with all the angels, same kingdom, the Davidic kingdom. Question, in what dispensation is the Davidic throne assumed? What age is that? Is it the uh, age of promise? No, no, that age came to an end. Is it, is it law? No, that's, that's already over. Is it grace? That's the one we're in now. Hey, are we living in the kingdom right now? Is Christ on David's throne right now in Jerusalem? Look around this world. Does this feel like the kingdom to you? No, man, if this is the kingdom, I'm big time disappointed. No, what age is it? It's, if you got your chart, it's pretty obvious. It's the kingdom age, a.k.a. the millennium, or the millennial reign of Christ. It's right there in the name. All earthly kingdoms at that point have come and gone. This is the last kingdom. Now then, how do we know it's Jesus sitting on that throne? Couldn't it be some other descendant of David? A lot of Jews think so. A lot of Jews think so. Well, here's what Luke 1 says. The angel Gabriel came to Mary to to announce that she would give birth to the Son of God. He says in verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. There will be no end. They're all writing from the same script. And according to 2 Samuel 7, to rule from David's throne, Jesus had to meet two requirements in your notes the first requirement if Jesus is qualified to be this guy he's got to meet both of these number one he has to be a blood descendant of David has to be you don't get around that that's prophecy the old testament's very clear if you prophesy something and it doesn't come true you die this is from God's own mouth so he's got to be a blood descendant of David second requirement in your notes he would legally uh, be entitled to sit on David's throne through Solomon. There's got to be a lineage that comes through Solomon in order to have a legal entitlement to the throne. You follow? So the near fulfillment of this covenant is Solomon. He builds the temple. So that's why his line is the legal line to the throne of David. Uh, and and you, it says also that you must be a blood descendant. Of David, So if we know that, that only a descendant of David, a blood descendant, can be the Messiah and, and sit on his throne, what do we need to do to make sure that Jesus is qualified for this throne? we got to look at his genealogy. Now, you were handed a piece of paper that has the genealogies of Christ. And on the left side, I believe, there is a genealogy from Matthew's Gospel. And I want you to look at that. Now, there's a lot of interesting things about this, but we're, we're looking for the name of David. Where do you see it? If you follow that, you can look at verse 6. It says, And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. All right? Who was the wife of Uriah? Well, that's, that's Bathsheba. So we got David. We got Solomon. So far, so good. Uh-oh. But there's a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Look at verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, 
and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You say, what's the problem? Here's the problem. Josiah, it says he's, the father, he's actually the grandfather of Jeconiah. Uh, sometimes they skip a name. They want to focus on the, the important figures in a genealogy. Uh, suffice to say, there's a king named Jehoiachin who is the father of this guy, Jeconiah. Jeconiah was a wicked, wicked king of Judah. In Scripture, he goes by other names. He's called Coniah. He's called Jehoiachim. Uh, he gets deported during the Babylonian invasion that, that I've talked to you about. So the same time as Daniel, same time as Ezekiel. He gets shipped off to Babylon. We read something about Jeconiah that's very disheartening in Jeremiah 22. And we see that he's the recipient of a divine curse. Uh, it says in verse 24 of that chapter, As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And so he compares Jeconiah to a signet ring that a king might wear that he rips off his finger and throws away. Verse 25, and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. Now that's bad, but it gets worse. There's a larger decree that affects more than, than Jeconiah. God says in verse 30, it says, Thus says the Lord, write of this man, or excuse me, write this man down as childless. A man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So we've got an obstacle here, folks. We, we, this, this, my friends, is a complete ban. There is no wiggle room here. It's not just a ban on Jeconiah. It's on every descendant that would come after Jeconiah. You see, they will not be allowed by God to ascend to the throne of David. That means in your notes, no blood descendant of David through Solomon could ascend to the throne because of the curse on Jeconiah. And there are Jewish rabbis that park right here and proclaim gleefully that Jesus is a false Messiah because he is descended, they say, from a lineage that contains a curse that prohibits him from ascending to David's throne. Now, why did Jeconiah do that? It was so bad. Well, we don't know. We don't know, but it didn't take long because the Bible says he was only about 18 when he came to the throne, and he only reigned for about three months. So I don't know what this kid did. I did some boneheaded things when I was 18, but nothing so bad as to be ripped off the ring finger of God and hurled into Babylon, I'll tell you that. But it says that he did evil in 2 Kings 24 in the sight of the Lord according to all his father had done. His father Jehoiachin had burned the writings of Jeremiah, so it might have been something blasphemous like that, but it ticked off God, and God said, you're done, you're done. And this is why, incidentally, this is why when we meet Joseph, the earthly adoptive father of Christ, this is why he's not on the throne. See, but for the sin of an ancestor, Joseph would have been king of Israel. And he's not. So, how do we address this with regard to Jesus' right to the throne? Well, first keep in mind, is Joseph the biological father of Jesus? No, he's not. 
No, he's not. There was a virgin birth. There was a virgin birth. You have a second genealogy on that page. So the first side, Matthew, you could trace it. You could see the name of Joseph on that genealogy. So the genealogy from Matthew is the lineage that involves Joseph. On the other side, we've got one from Luke. Now, that is the genealogy on his, mother's, uh, his mother Mary's side. Okay, now there are a few things to note here. Uh, but, but the bottom line is this. Joseph adopted Jesus because Mary's father and Joseph's father were brothers. Okay, and there is such a thing in uh, Jewish tradition that is called leveret marriage and what that means is that when uh, a man dies and he has a brother his brother marries the widow okay it's a jewish tradition and so there is a legal adoption here and so joseph's father runs through both lineages and essentially you got matthew recording his genealogy christ's genealogy through joseph luke records jesus lineage through mary and if you follow mary's goes backwards so joseph starts with abraham and moves forward it's a forward progressing uh, genealogy mary's starts with her and goes backward and it goes not just to abraham it goes all the way to adam see matthew stops at Abraham, because Matthew's gospel is geared toward Jews. Abraham, uh, Luke goes all the way to Adam as if to say, this is for the whole world. This is for everybody. It's all inclusive. And here's, and, but here's the thing. In both genealogies, you get to David. You get to David. Luke 3.31, on that genealogy, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of... David. And so there's David. Mary is of the house of David. She's descended from David. But does she come through the line of Solomon? No. She comes through the line of David's other son, Nathan. Now guess who's not in Nathan's line? Jehoiakim. All right? Jeconiah. Jeconiah. The one on whom this curse had befallen he and his descendants. There's no curse in this genealogy. So the genealogy in Luke is the genealogy of Mary, and it shows that she is a blood descendant of King David through Nathan, so she avoids the curse of Jeconiah. In Matthew, you go backward from Joseph and Jacob, and you trace it to David through Solomon. So you've got a legal line... But Jesus is born of a virgin, so he is untainted by that curse that inhabits that genealogy. But he is still legally entitled to the throne. But because he is not related biologically to Joseph, he doesn't fall under that curse. And he still has a blood relationship through Mary to King David. And so here you are in your notes, God's solution. Matthew records Jesus' genealogy through Joseph. Luke records it through Mary. Both are necessary you got to have both genealogies because Joseph is the legal line. Mary is the biological line. So you need Solomon from a legal perspective to qualify to fulfill this prophecy. Uh, and you benefit from the legal line, but you need the biological line to be untainted 
by the curse. Here's the summary in your notes as we wrap this up. Jesus right to the Davidic throne, number one, as Joseph's legal son in the kingly line, he was and legally is entitled to the throne of David. Because Solomon's part of that line. So there's the legal line, there's an adoption there, he's a legal heir because of the presence of Solomon in that line. You need that line. That's number one. Number two in your notes. As a blood descendant of David's son Nathan through his mother Mary, Jesus is a blood descendant of David as God said he would be. Does God ever say anything that's not true? No. So this proves the necessity of the virgin birth. If anybody ever asks you, is the virgin birth a big deal? It is absolutely a big deal. It is absolutely a big deal. You know how many prophecies relate to the Davidic throne in the Old Testament? How many New Testament prophecies correlate with that? If there's no virgin birth, it's all a bunch of malarkey. You gotta have the virgin birth. Number three in your notes, since Jesus was Joseph's legal son, but not his blood descendant, he avoids the curse on the blood descendants of Jeconiah, as I've said before. And so, so what this means is there is literally no one in human history who could possibly be a candidate for the throne of David to be the Messiah except for Jesus of Nazareth. He's the only one. The one and only. Every few years, people come up with, an, with some person that they've identified as the Messiah. Pe- people, you know, rabbis, what, they go, here, oh, here he is! We found him! Usually he's like in his 90s. It's bizarre. But no one could ever qualify because the whole line is cursed. There was no one like Christ that could meet both these demands. And number four, as we close, God has kept every part of his covenant with King David except for one. Except for one. Someone from his line would rule over an eternal kingdom. Hasn't happened yet. Is Jesus on the throne of David right now? No. No, because where is that throne? It's going to be in Jerusalem. That is a future event. When will it happen? It will happen at the end of the tribulation. He will come. He will defeat the Antichrist. He will set foot on the Mount of Olives. It will split in half. There will be a temple cleansing slash uh, reconstruction. All right? And he will then take his place in the new millennial temple. And he will reign. Let me ask you as we wrap this up. Can a God who works out all the intricacies of Jesus' lineage cause these dry bones to live again? Can he resurrect his people? Absolutely he can. No one would have ever thought Israel would be back in the land, and they are. They are. No one would ever have thought that a carpenter's son would be the Messiah. But he is, and he will assume the throne that is rightfully his because with God all things are possible. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the the blessing of your word. We are told when we read prophecy, we will be blessed. And so I ask for that blessing, God, as we continue to study. Eventually, we're going to look at your book that makes that promise, the book of Revelation. And I am so grateful for your word and for these hungry, insatiable people who want to know it and understand it, that they might proclaim it and have hope. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.